0: Hey guys, what's up? Week 219. Uh, actually recording on, uh, if you guys don't know, I record these in advance, of course. Um, so I record usually every Saturday morning. So you guys get the video on Wednesday, it uh, goes live, and I record on um, Saturday morning. Or Saturday afternoon. This time I'm recording it um, Friday evening because I have work tomorrow and also have to record the Summer Series 2017 for Podcast Under the Stairs. So that's probably going to be a long recording. Uh, Let's hop into the reviews. The first one is from the MVD Rewind Collection. And I was waiting for this bad boy to come out. um, And I had seen the Electric Boogaloo documentary, I think it's called that, um, about Canon Films. And this one is The Go Go Boys. And this is the inside story of Canon Films. That's right. So I guess. What happened was once the Golan and Globus, the owners of Canon, kind of or the guys who used to run Canon, kind of realized, is from my understanding that um, the Electric Boogaloo documentary about Canon Films was coming out, they kind of rushed and um, went ahead and made their own documentary. And this was what around. 2015 20, 2016 20, or something like that. And I think it might have screened uh, for like festivals in 2018. Maybe even earlier, to be honest. I think it might have been earlier than that and probably giving false information. I feel like it might have even been 2015. Um, so anyways, so this kind of starts off early. And it is, I don't want to say necessarily a vanity piece. It definitely looks at Golan and Globus with more rose-tinted glasses. But you have actual interviews with them. And them talking about it, and you can you can gather their personality, and it tells you kind of the whole story of them rising up as these two kind of independent filmmakers in Israel, and how how um, Globus gave his cousin uh, Golan a chance, a Golem a chance going on sorry and uh, this whole history of them starting off with their their films that were kind of hits in uh, Israel and uh Globus directing a lot of stuff too like what was it the Lemon Popsicle Kids which actually they remade as The Last American Virgin in America which did very well but it kind of starts off doing that story and going through the entire thing until eventually we get into the heart and soul of the movie which is the uh the canon era stuff them starting off making low budget pictures and building up and up and up and of course uh, uh, just completely being these giant you know behemoths in the movie industry like a new company which no one really had done for years um, there's a great part you'll see in the trailer but uh, that Globus uh, glow is like um, the Go-Go Boys he's a Go-Go they call them the Go-Go Boys because they're always going always making a movie always making a movie and he's like Go-Go it means Go-Go and it's just like I love that like he's just these. they're such characters to be honest like they're larger than life characters and you don't hear the stuff that you heard in the electric Bo- uh, Boogaloo, uh documentary about you know uh, Globus pulling out a gun and say, to the pilot on Delta Force and saying you're making another round uh, you know flying the plane even though he's exhausted, so it's more like a lighthearted thing. But you start to see why they had their eventual collapse. Of course, everybody knows about Canon Films. And what I don't particularly care for about the other documentary is there's a lot of people on there being like these movies are so ridiculous or they're terrible and yada yada yada. And yes, um. The thing is, like, uh, they didn't get a lot of critical critical acclaim, but they eventually did with and producing tons of movies like Runaway Train. But a lot of people are really, you know, they'll laugh at some of the stuff like the the Chuck Norris and Charles Bronson movies. And most people that love movies, or most people that are writing movies. Over time, they're going to be running the Chuck Norris or Charles Bronson movies. They're going to remember the Chuck Norris or Charles Bronson movies. And I love stuff like that. I love canon films growing up. Master Universe was one of my all-time favorite movies. And I know that doesn't necessarily make it a great movie, especially in, you know, Academy Awards eyes or something like that. But these people made movies for the masses. They made lots of different kinds of movies, too. And... They said uh, there, there's actually um, a guy in here who works for a, a, it's one of the big studios and he basically's talking about it um, and he knew them personally and uh, he, he mentions that you know the movie industry isn't um, a numbers game you don't want the, the quantity you need hits it's a hits game So they go into of course you know the over um, over the top and stuff they're kind of there at Superman 4 they're, they're big kind of you know moments where they were actually SOL, and it's, it's amazing to see uh, the difference, of course. They said Globus always spent more than a Golan could, could get, because we had the one that was more of the filmmaking aspect, just wanted to make film. That's all he ever wanted to do, produce and direct and just nonstop. And the other one who was more of the money guy and handled the business side of things. So in, in a way, it looks like the two of them together made this complete you know canon and they needed to be together and they, there's like uh, of course a fallout for the story and that's some of the saddest stuff for me and there's this great moment where i don't want to spoil too much but at the end they have some stuff with them coming back together and i thought that was the most touching stuff just seeing them um sitting down together um without spoiling too much like i said i don't want to but it was just i know it's like fluffy in, in some ways but um like I said, it was enjoyable to see that and a little bit of heartbreaking as well. Um, Globus has since died. Um, I think he died a few years back at age of 85. He was pretty high up there, Um, but they, they, they moved on and I don't think that they were completely poor or anything after that. I know that Golan was still doing good in business uh, and stuff like that, but uh, I, I enjoyed this doc. You know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of films uh, in general, of course, and Canon films so seeing how some of these were made and behind the scenes and seeing like a little bit of the other side with it too. So we kind of have this and Electric Boogaloo together. I think they probably make together like one of the best documentaries you could seeing both sides of the story and everything like that. Um, but I, I really enjoyed this one as well. And um, they are characters. Like they're such characters. And, and like seeing the archival stuff and them being interviewed and running and how how Globus like would never admit when there's a problem. We're fine. We just oh like... You know, three hundred twenty-eight million dollars. It's gonna be all right. That um, yeah, you know, it, it's just. Uh, I wish somebody like Cannon Films was still around. To be honest, and Dino De Laurentiis. Um, like I said, I've mentioned this a couple times. Nobody's gonna produce stuff like that. They just—they said that a lot of the movie companies would like sell them the crummy scripts that no one wanted, and it, it, what it made was just a bunch of bonkers movies. Uh, Eli Roth has a little bit in here too, praising Canon Films, which was nice to see. Um, Michael Dudikoff was in here. John Claude Van Damme has a little bit in here too, talking about how he he went to uh, Globus. He's like, please, 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 and he said he like got on his knees. And he's like, don't cry. And it's just like all that stuff like that. I don't know. He, they're characters and. Um, as as crazy as some of the stuff that they did is it is they are endearing they come off endearing in this and like i said some people would say it's more of a vanity thing or a piece or maybe it's just a direct you know um obviously a direct you know flyer back at, at electric boogaloo but still um i i enjoyed seeing this part of the story as well so that is the go-go boys the what is it the story of canon films the inside story of canon films so yeah Okay, so the next one is an honor of films release, and this is by the late Ryan Nicholson, and this is Hanger, which I believe was his third feature film. Uh, yeah, and two thousand nine was a crazy time. Rewatching this, it had been years. Like. um... Back when like uh, I started doing YouTube reviews, there was like a lot of uh, extreme filmmakers that were making these crazy movies. I mean, Fred Vogel was like always being talked about on there, and Ryan Nicholson and Brian Paulin, and there was just a, a big focus on kind of the extreme films. And I had not watched a lot of them in a long time, you know. Like, I, I watched Gutterballs again uh, recently and, and uh, Live Feed and stuff like that. So rewatching Ryan Nicholson's movies after it had been a long time. Um, this one, uh, Hanger, which is a bonkers movie, one of his grossest movies for sure, just was kind of, like, insane. Like, I was watching this film. It, it, the plot is is just absolutely bonkers and disgusting and repulsive and so repulsive that I was just like I can't believe this was made at the time and then Jeremy walked in and I, I said something like that and he said well you just watch pink flamingos from 1972 and that stuff is the same it, it kind of has that same filth insanity to it so um it, it was just in the like early like 2009 and like 2013 14. Even fifteen, there was so such an extreme movement in, in like independent films, and, and even so much so that like I even was in a couple like Headless and Hunters, and, and like her name was Torment Two. I guess would be considered kind of an ext- on the extreme side of films, but uh, Hanger, uh, this watching this kind of took me back a little bit of how insane some of them movies were and how so on pc they were in comparison to a lot of movies nowadays i mean they're still being made but i don't know if they get the focus or attention that you know hanger did so essentially what we have here is um debbie roshan you know classic scream queen here and she's a prostitute who has this kind of semi relationship with uh dan uh dan ellis who's a Ryan Nicholson regular. He also pops up in uh, Marcus Cook's movie, The American Guinea Pig, um, his crazy one, Bloodshock. So basically they kind of have a relationship. She ends up getting pregnant and her pimp obviously doesn't like that. Um, So he gives her a coat hanger abortion, a forced one in graphic detail. And the baby doesn't die. It ends up being kind of like uh, deformed and mentally handicapped, possibly has a lot of problems. It ends up growing up on the streets until Dan Ellis comes back to raise the kid, get him a job, take care of him and everything like that, And, and basically lays out who he is and he says he's his father and what happened and he wants to get revenge on the pimp and he needs his help. They call him Hanger because a botched coat hanger abortion. So this is the kind of movie we're dealing with, right? So um, uh, I should mention Lloyd Kaufman does have a role in the very beginning um, as a trans uh, prostitute or sex worker, which in itself is absolutely ridiculous. So um, the movie is so weird, and it does have this cartoon element. Like, I don't know how to explain it. If Dick Tracy was a focusing... if If you were to take Dick Tracy... And put it, like, set it in a slum area of, of town and make sure everybody got covered in the toxic waste from Robocop that hit Emil. Like I feel like that's what happened here. So we have this weird idea of all these characters that are wearing this excessive makeup like Dan Hicks's nose and then Hanger has his mutated face and um, there's a lot of people from Gutterballs in this one as well. I think actually uh, the person who ca- plays Russell and the the bully character and Hanger himself are pretty much the three of the main bullies. The three main bullies, not, I don't even say bullies, the three main horrible rapists who act like high school bullies in Gutterballs. So their makeup is absolutely ridiculous. And it's just, they, they're so foul and so awful and so gross. And it's in this world of insanity where everybody's screaming and everybody doesn't value life. And it's a cartoon world of gross carnage and disgust. Um, the character of Russell, he is playing this super stereotypical Asian character. And it's almost like they like put a bunch of makeup on his eyes. And it's just like, holy shit. Like... Oh boy, man, 2009 was a wild time for indie movies, right? Um, so, so it is grotesquely violent too. Like there's a lot of gore, lots of nasty shit and it's on a budget, but some of the stuff in here still makes me gag to my stomach involving, um, a tampon, a used tampon and a, a colostomy, uh, bag hole. Like, I don't know how to say that. A colostomy hole. Um, um honestly there is uh there is lots of rape and degradation but it's all comedy too so it's just this bonkers over the top um insane movie um it is so gross. I, I don't know how to say this, but it I don't even want to say it was made at a certain time because always extreme crazy movies are made. But if you want to see how nuts some of those extreme movies were and like the, the early aughts, or I mean like 10, 2010, I don't even know what you'd call that, the teens or something like that, Hanger is one of the ones that I would throw on the table. Now a lot of people are just going to be absolutely repulsed by it or just not get the tonal tone in it because it is a weird tone nicholson had this weird tone where there's a lot of extreme gross serious subject matter but then there would be these off-color jokes that you're just like wow man this this is this is kind of a hard thing to juggle sometimes it falls flat on its face other times somebody might just burst out laughing hysterically from it uh, i i Found myself being repulsed watching it again, but that's kind of its intent. Uh, and I did enjoy Dan Hicks. I meant Dan Hicks is from Darkman, sorry, Dan Ellis. And the some of the stuff that comes out of these characters' mouth is bonkers. The makeup effects I think are some of Nicholson's best when he's working on his own. You know, he doesn't he's he's a great special effects artist, right? But when you're on a budget, like you don't have the means that he would on a big film or something like that. So I feel like Gutterballs and Hanger were probably his finest um, special effects work in his own movies. Like towards the end, like some of the cheaper ones, like Dead Nude Girls or something, there really wasn't any special effects to speak of. This bad boy is loaded with so many features I'm going to have to read them off to you. Uh, commentary director Ryan Nicholson behind the stoma, the making and taking of Hanger. Uh, enough dope to hang yourself with on set with Lloyd Kaufman, which is ridiculous and funny photo gallery blooper reel deleted scenes black on white bread colossomy bag edition uh that i imagine is the one with the hardcore inserts which i fast forward through to see and there's one scene of hardcore inserts additional scenes trailer behind the scenes and over 16 hours of additional extras so that's the one problem with these on earth things and that it's a it's a positive there is no way you can watch all 16 hours of this stuff, like, of behind-the-scenes stuff. But if you were, like, an a, a absolute Brian Nicholson fanatic, then you could put it on and just check out 16 hours of behind-the-scenes and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it's a loaded disc. I mean, this movie is made on a budget, so the, the picture quality is not going to be, you know, 4K, aesthetic you know, oh, I can't believe this Lawrence of Arabia stuff. You know, you kind of can see what you're kind of getting here, and they work with the elements that they had. So I think that On Earth right now has already put out, reissued Gutter Balls, Live Feed, uh, Torched, and um, Hangar. So I think we have Bleeding Lady, a.k.a. Star Vehicle coming out. And uh, possibly, what are some other ones that are coming out? Um, I think that we're going to get Gutterballs, too, eventually. And uh, Big Fucking Monster, I think those are are coming. So, yeah. uh, I think that we also had Famine come out from on Earth. So we've had that one as well. So anyways, if you're a Ryan Nicholson fan, um, he, he was a really friendly guy. Always, always... Talk to the fans and everything like that, and he had a very sad end uh, with brain cancer and everything. So I, I feel I feel kind of a, a, a bit of sadness every time I do watch one of his movies, but I do uh, just remember a time watching him. It takes me back to that and stuff. So uh, R.I.P. Ryan. I'll say that after every movie I watch from him. And uh, check it out. If, you, if you're big on on-earth films or gross films or indie uh, sleaze fest or extreme films like that when they were made, there's tons of them, like I said at that time, then check out Hangar. It's, it's one of the... Uh, it's one of the ones with a with a lot of guts, uh, metaphorically and whatever, <laughs> literally, and it's probably gonna offend quite a bit of people. Okay, this is probably the most schizophrenic show like ever. Just this is what I this is how I always do. This has been my whole life. Like when I used to make CD mixes, it would be like Boister Cult followed by Metallica, followed by like the theme music from The Good, the Bad, and Ugly, by Indiana Morricone, Ecstasy of Gold, or something like that. So like I do that with my reviews too, I guess. So after to follow up. Uh, Hanger, we're gonna hop into Hereditary. Now, Hereditary was one of the movies picked for the 2018 summer series. Now, as far as one of the main two or three movies picked, I don't 100%. I can't give you that information. But when I saw that Hereditary is one of the, the 12 movies, I was like, well, it's going to be picked. I'm going to watch it. I decided to rewatch it right away to try to get ahead, because obviously Hereditary has got to be one of the three, right? Just by its vast popularity, and I think that it has you know a lot of praise from a big chunk of the, the horror crowd. So let me say this. I remember seeing Hereditary in theaters when it came out, and uh I walked out, and I felt the same way as when I saw The Witch. I said, man, that was a strange film. I want to discuss it. Um, and usually those movies end up being some of the better or the most uh, critically acclaimed because they, they get you to think, and they they challenge you and everything like that. And Ari Aster's uh, films are just like... I don't know how to put this. like For me, um, anybody that's that suffered from uh, sudden loss of someone they love, it, it, he captures it really well. Now, the first part of Hereditary is mostly uh, this really dark, twisted family drama. And by the end of it, you realize that there is these supernatural, horrible things happening to this family on top of the tragedy. But when you realize all the setup in the beginning of the film, all the things that uh, Tony Collette says about her life and about her past and about her mother and everything like that. Now, I'm going to talk a little spoiler on this because I've covered it once. So in the beginning of the film, Tony Collette's mother passes away. She obviously was distant. And we hear a lot about her mother passing away in this kind of help therapy group and she says about her entire family to this whole group and she says this horribly sad story and everybody just kind of dumbfounded. You see a guy fiddling with his hands in uncomfortability which genuinely I think would happen and she explains this, this thing with her family about her father dying starving himself and her brother killing himself because he felt that there were people inside him. She goes on about her mother dying and, and a bunch of people at the funeral she didn't know and all this stuff is such good setup. Now like when you rewatch it, it you over the head with it but the first time you watch it you just think it's there right it, it's just well hidden in plain sight i guess it was, it, they tell you exactly everything like it's not one of these movies where you're like i can't figure out what's going on they, it, it does take a second viewing to gather everything but they literally are telling you everything that that's going to happen in a lot of ways um the emotion in this movie is fantastic well if anybody hasn't seen the film. Um, it, it's a Rosemary's baby style movie in a, in a lot of ways, but it's completely unique too. um, the camera work is fantastic. Um, the Tony Collette's job is she basically makes miniatures, these elaborate, expensive miniatures. So like we incorporate that too. And, and even at the last shot of the film, we kind of put it in a miniature, which is really clever. Uh, it, it um, it's just so much things about this where it recreates it, it, it creates these scenes of absolute despair. Um, when Tony Klatt finds the, um, the headless corpse of Charlie and she starts screaming, that moment literally felt real to me. Like I was watching something I shouldn't be seeing. Like I was looking at someone have a breakdown. Like, um, I don't want to get personal on situations. You know what I mean? But everybody's had those where you see somebody literally lose something so important to them that they have a freak out where they have a a complete mental break where they just cannot deal with life and they don't want to deal with life and they shut down and, It was there, it was legitimate, felt legitimate. Gabriel Byrne in this movie is also fantastic. Now, he is the guy who's trying to keep it together, but you see him slipping, and you see so much detail in his face, in his um, reactions to situations. When they're sitting around the dinner table, and at one point, Tony Collette gets very upset at her son, who is partially responsible for some of the horrible things that have been happening. Um, Well, that's a weird situation, right? Who's to blame? Everyone, no one yeah so he starts she starts tony cluck goes off on her own son and you see gabrielle burns face go from anger to sadness to just like shock too. it's just such a great great moment um when the disturbing stuff does happen, it's it's uh visually like violent and stuff. It's there. Um, you know, sawing of the head off. My only complaint about it is like kind of running on the ceiling stuff at the very end reminds me of kinda like that cheap like we saw the exorcist scare and that's the only knock I have on the movie. But everything else, I think, works really well. It is um, a little convoluted, like as far as the passing of payment and things like that. But watching it, it's more understandable a second time for sure. It's not—I wouldn't say it's exactly a straightforward thing how it all unfolds. But life is not exactly straightforward, so obviously some things kind of screwed up and screwed up the whole situation and that and everybody's plan. But uh, yeah. Uh, lots of setup, lots of payoffs, uh, immaculately well acted, all four of the leads in here are fantastic. Um, There's great realizations that Toni Collette has where she goes with her husband at and tells him all these things. Well, this is this, this. And she sounds literally like a paranoid, a paranoiac or something like that where she seems very unhinged. And the movie's called Hereditary. So you know that her mom had problems. Her father had mental problems. Her brother had mental problems. And then you start to see things happening to their kids that possibly could be mental problems and herself. So for a long period of time, you just don't know if anything is really happening or it's just some sort of hereditary problem but when she's explaining all these screwed up things to gabrielle byrne like the the body in the in the in the attic and this and that and i saw this woman and she had a pillow like that and it just it's just like you sound legitimately crazy like she sounds in, absolutely insane but at the same time everything she's saying you know to be true or at least it appeared to be true to you as well while watching the film so it's just uh really great stuff like that um i, I would say that this is one of the finest performances that i've ever seen in a horror film You know, I mean, there's some great ones, of course. I'm not saying like this is the new standard because there's tons of like old horror films that have these tremendous performances as well. But I guess I would say in modern, you know, the last 10, 20 years, it's one of the better ones for sure. And uh, I I know a lot of people don't love this movie. And maybe it's just because hype or it just didn't connect with you or you're not really into dark dramas. But this is a horror film too, as well. I mean, it has these crazy elements and and it it tackles, uh, I don't want to say like, and, and also when people like Ellie. Elevated horror. It's like, dude, the 70s had tons of horror films like this. I don't know why all of a sudden now this is elevated. Whatever. But anyways, it's a fantastic movie. I really like it. Um, And I'm also a fan of Midsommar by Ari Aster. Um, Just a filmmaker to obviously look out for. And he has a a unique way of ripping your soul out of your body on film. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Hereditary. Okay, so the next one is a Patreon pick from Jason Willard, and he picked 18 Bronzman. Uh, it's some martial arts movie. <laughs> Sorry about that. And uh, yeah, so I had not seen this one. I'd seen a handful of martial arts films uh, that, you know, that, I, that I've enjoyed. So this one, um, I go to rent it on Amazon, and I hate watching a lot of these movies like this dubbed in it English, because it, it just makes it cheesy as hell. And I I rent it, it's a dollar, it's really cheap. And the picture quality is a potato. It literally looks like they got some like print that was underwater. It's clearly like a dub, like a read VHS. So I'm so upset, I was like, I can't watch this. So it's not really readily available. So I I try to find it any way I can. I eventually get a copy, the subs are off. So just the viewing experience of this in general was not exactly the best, to be honest. And I, I have to say that up front because it probably affected some of my viewing of it. So we have here is these villains. Try, like it's, it's definitely like a time of kingdom and overthrowing. They're trying to murder this this guy and his entire family. He's a young man. He ends up escaping and getting taken to this, uh, I don't even want to use the proper term, dojo, but like a monastery or whatever where they train martial arts. And their entire main goal is to be able to defeat the 18 bronze men. So they train for a life. So we see him at a young age developing his skills with other young men, and they become friends, become brothers in this place. And they almost go through this 18 bronze men kind of... Uh, um, like, I guess I'll say like a gauntlet. So they have like these big metal guys coming out and fighting them and the sounds they make when they hit is such a satisfying, it's like boom, 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 like all these like kind <clears> of <throat> sound effects of the metal gongs hitting when they're hitting them. It's very satisfying. So they have all these different traps and stuff they have to overcome. So eventually um, if you pass, you go out into the real world and everything like that. And pretty pretty soon enough, it, the circumstances are set up where he has to get revenge for his the loss of his family and everything that happened previously, and they're obviously after him as well. Still, so it's up to him, his newly found um, wife, who's like in, destined to be with him, and one of his old friends, and they must fight the master. So that's the setup and kind of the whole entire run of the movie. Um, the martial arts stuff is cool. I like the um, I I, I kind of like when these movies bring out weapons and do a lot of things. It's not the most um, insane. stuff stuff I've seen but it's it's well done um, it's not my favorite to be honest and I don't really have that much to say I liked it I enjoyed like the hitting of like the th- the like, uh, man everything like that and kind of over defeating that stuff and learning all the things because they're going to have to face in the main villain they're going to have to face all these aspects that the bronze Men had so it's clever and I would have liked to see a nice print I think it would have helped with proper subs and everything matched up but a lot of these movies you know they don't get the proper releases over here I do think this might be getting a release down the line. I'm not 100% sure. But there is an HD version around, but I believe it's a Chinese Blu-ray, which runs for a very expensive money, and I could not have got it in time. So that's kind of a problem. But anyways, I enjoyed my time with it. Um, I would like to revisit a better quality of it. Um, and also, one of the lead guys in here, of course, is in Big Trouble in Little China. He is, I think he's the wind guy, or whatever, the big mean-looking guy. He, he does most of the damage in this movie, to be honest. So that's 18 Bronzeman. Okay, now it's time to hit that big 19 19- 70 stretch uh, I got a bunch of them for you though sometimes beaten back he came again and again against the enemy till at the end he came alone from the bloody field for he alone could triumph this was a dracula deed in 70, president nixon ordered american troops into cambodia he called it an
1: incursion not an invasion but it lasted for two months purpose was to destroy enemy bases and supply lines. At times, that mission was extremely dangerous. Marcus Welby, MD, and the Dick Cabot Show will not be seen tonight, so that we may bring you live cover coverage of the 42nd Annual Awards of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Jimi Hendrix experience is over. The acid
0: rock musician died today in a London hospital, apparently from an overdose of drugs. Headquarters in Washington, I'm Howard K. Smith. I'm Harry Reisner in New York. These are tonight's headlines. Rail service across the nation is crippled by the continuing strike of the railway
1: clerk union. President Nixon meets with newsmen in his first nationally televised news conference since late July. Defense Consul says that Lieutenant Calley had orders from higher up to
0: kill every living thing, Eli. And Secretary of State Rogers pledges that American troops will not be sent back into Cambodia. Ours Reports denied on the rail strike from Gregory... And after she let the devil fornicate with her, making the men impotent. Okay, the first up is a crazy Czechoslovakian movie. Most of the movies that are going to be from like the Czech Republic or whatever, I don't know if it's Czech Republic at the time, probably was, are, 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 that make it to America are going to be kind of bizarre, different. And this is Valerie and her Week of Wonders. So this is uh, based on a, a, a novel from my understanding. I don't think the novel is 100% close to the movie. This is a strange film, and I believe I had seen this one, and I I can't remember exactly. Probably back in the early uh, Shut Up Brandon podcast days, I think I checked this one out. Um... This is a this is a, a, a crazy, weird movie from 1970. I know some people, uh, one of my friends was like, this isn't a horror film. And I'm just like, I don't know what world you're in. I know it's not a typical horror film, but there is a lot of horror aspects here. I would say a fairy tale first, then a horror movie. It has like elements of Wizard of Oz and um, Lamora in here. Like I don't know how to, Lamora and Wizard of Oz, but it's made before Lamora. And it has like this weird coming of age style to it. Uh, it's a weird magic movie so how do i go about this okay so we have this young girl valerie and the day she mentions she has her period to her grandmother is taking care of her she knows that her parents are both are both gone so she's being raised in this kind of beautiful house and um she the only person that she really kind of hangs around with is um uh, egglet uh who we find out later is her brother possibly, but they call each other cousins and they obviously have a weird attraction. So right there we get this gross incest angle and there's this guy that uh, is basically, he appears to be like a weird corpse and he has a great reveal with the, the mask and kind of the circus time because there's like, in the beginning they mentioned that the, uh, the who is it, the priest or the uh, the missionaries are coming and the actors are coming and, and all this kind of stuff coming to the village and he, he seems to be there showing up with them. And he is apparently the uncle or the, the uncle of Eglet. So he, um, and it would appear that most people see him as young and handsome, but she sees him as this kind of corpse, like Nosferatu style, rotted teeth character. And he's really gross, but he's also a polecat. If that can make any sense to anyone, he seems to transform like a vampire. So this is a weird vampiric story where eventually her grandmother has, has a relation with the, with this polecat character as well, Richard, I'll say. And it goes back further and people are turning into vampires and people are playing dual roles and reality will change through these earrings that seem to be magical and protective. Like So there's these weird magical um, elements in here as well. Uh, it's a beautiful looking movie. It looks fantastic. There's lots of flowers and lots of chickens running around and lots of crazy. Crazy chaos and mayhem and and just strange things, but yeah, it's a it's a weird vampire film in a lot of ways in coming of age film and a lot of symbol symbolic stuff and, and, and kind of like it's saying statements on the church and, and things like that. There's this weird moment where one of the, like the, the priest comes after her and he's just really gross. And, uh, it, it does seem to be, like I said, like a warped fairy tale wizard of Oz coming of age, vampire period piece, insane, insane, work of art like it's gorgeous the cinematography is gorgeous the music is gorgeous there's lots of great uh lines and and uh i meant like s- scenes like shots and everything so i like i said it, it's a beautiful film and it's it's not too long it doesn't overwear uh over you know do its welcome but it's it's like it's it's a lot to talk about it's a lot to kind of explore and and divvy up and i just can't like tell you exactly what everything means like when you're watching it it kind of makes sense but then like things will change all the time and who's who and and multiple actors playing multiple things and it's just like there's some good creepy moments for sure uh yeah valerie and a week of wonders uh creepy uh great film there's a couple features on here one of which i watched uh which is, um, there's three early shorts, but I watched New Interview with Czechoslovakian film scholar Peter Hames. And he talks a little bit about this film, which is absolutely insane. Uh, And and like, it's one of these movies where you watch and you're like, I think I got some of it. I want to know if I'm right about this and this. And then you'll listen to other people talk about it. And they're like, like, well, it's a weird, bizarre, not really a horror movie, not really a fairy tale. Um, I don't really, and they're just like, shit, really? Like a lot of the people are just, I don't know, like there there's a lot to unfold and there's just a lot it's a lot of weird meanings and things like that in here as well. So uh, not everybody can just outly explain a movie, you know, it's just uh, but it's a unique experience and I really enjoyed the hell out of it. So yeah, Valerie and her week of wonders. Okay, this next one from 1970 is uh, cauldron of Blood with Boris Karloff. That's right. And uh, this is essentially kind of a a weird do a makeover or something kind of similar to Bucket of Blood by Roger Corman with Dick Miller. So we have here is uh, Boris Karloff is a sculptor and he is blind. He was in an accident. And his wife takes care of them. They're kind of isolated in a beautiful, I can't remember, exotic, beautiful location. And he makes sculptures and sells them off paintings or something like that. Um, This journalist or somebody shows up to this location looking for a story or or following a lead. And uh, people start to disappear. No one really knows what's happening. And it feels like it's kind of obvious what's going on. But you don't know exactly who the players are and everything like that. So, um, of course, there's some sort of murder taking place and... People being turned into kind of art projects. That's kind of uh, obvious right away. Um, the wife is obviously a uh, main suspect and creepy and everything like that. There's a couple dream sequences or like hallucinations, which get completely bonkers and psychedelic. So, like, um, all the movies from 1970 are either like weird period pieces like Jonathan or um, Mark of the Devil or something like that. Or you have the ones that are like carryovers from the sixties where they feel like partially like weird sixties spy movies with the psychedelic, like dance music. Like, and this one has that, like, there's like a lot of club scenes of people just dancing and everything like that. And odd characters wandering around. This one is a bit meandering. Boris Karloff is solid in it. um, But it's, it's semi predictable. And uh, the, the last couple shots with Karloff are just like hilariously bad, like, um, you know, put it like uh, I don't even know right now what I've called. Weird dissolve, like cutting uh, over each other, and just looks kind of silly. Um, there's no special features on here, which kind of made me sad. But um, it looks pretty decent. Um, uh, it's it's obviously remastered from of Films. Uh, yeah, it, it's an alright one. I didn't absolutely adore it. The lead's not fantastic. He's kind of a little bit forgettable, to be honest. Um, But yeah, there's lots of kind of hanging out, partying, having a couple drinks here and there. But there is a cauldron of blood and it's acid and it's awesome. So I give it that as it's like classic, kind of like that way that if your hand goes in, it's just a skeleton. Um, Doesn't like Scream and Scream Again have something like that as well? That's also from 1970. So I guess we're, we're dealing with acid baths right now. Yeah. Okay, this next one here also feels kind of like a 60s spy movie, and this is Assignment Terror, uh, starring Paul Naschy, and it also stars the uh, the lead actor in the Day the Earth Stood Stale, the sci-fi classic. So, um... This is absolutely an insane movie and you gotta give it props for somehow making a monster mash. Like, I love monster mashes. Anytime you can incorporate multiple monsters like Monster Squad or Neon Maniacs or Waxwork, I'm like, yes. Especially when they're universal style mashups. So this one incorporates four big monsters, all right? And aliens and uh, craziness. So what we have here is it appears that these aliens are invading Earth because I think they wanna take over Earth, but they're gonna do that by kind of playing on man's superstition and bringing back creatures or monsters that man feared including a vampire who's some sort of count that's not Dracula. Frankenstein monster which is they like Flangenstein they say it different because they're trying to avoid copyright a wolfman and a mummy which is cool because you rarely see a mummy mixed with other monsters. You know he's not always there. Um, you kind of do see the Wolfman, Dracula, Frankenstein mixing it up a little bit. But uh, yeah, so I was very excited to see the monster mashup. There's a lot of behind-the-scenes scientific stuff that reminded me of some of that like cheesy 60s television or like a, a Santo movie or something like that, where like you have the weird televisions and people viewing and everything. It definitely feels like a carryover from the 60s for sure. Um, Paul is really good at it, and of course he plays. Is Valdemar Danzitsky, the typical werewolf guy. He plays in a bunch of these other movies. And uh, he is dug up and the silver bowl is removed from his heart. That's how they bring him back. So we do have a vampire vampire kind of like attacking people occasionally, but we do see uh, Valdemir uh, kind of attack here and there. And the mummy too. The mummy has the best makeup. Some of the makeup on the creatures is a little shoddy, to be honest. It's real shoddy. Uh, but I think that the mummy looks the creepiest. I, I actually thought he was very effective. And of course, these things have to to come to an end in kind of spectacular fashion i'll use spectacular quotes um because you know it's not as much as you'd want but it's effective and we have a couple monster fights which um i remember watching a couple uh movies that had uh where they had like a sasquatch and like a big giant monster in the same room and they didn't fight or they were around each other and i'm just like what are you doing or like the tear within two had two giant monsters in the same room and you don't fight if you have multiple monsters in your movie You have to have a monster fight. Like, it is an unwritten rule. If I'm seeing two monsters in your movie, they better fight. Or they better be on teams or something. You know what I mean? I know Neon Manix doesn't have the monsters fight, alright. Sorry. But Monster Squad has some monster fights. And Assignment Terror has some monster fights. That's right. I don't think I've ever seen a werewolf square off against a mummy the fight is a little short, but still cool. And we have, of course, a recreation of, you know, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman at the end here. So that is very cool. You know, all these things kind of exploding. And of course, this science, the the evil aliens kind of learn that man's true power is his um, compassion, which is kind of a nice... A little heartwarming thing here. Um, I guess Nashi wrote this one, uh, according to a commentary by Troy Haworth, which is a great commentary. Um, and he points out some of these things, of course, you know, bad makeup, but that doesn't take a, a film historian to point out bad makeup on Frankenstein and stuff like that. And, and even, and even the Wolfman, uh, and even Nashy. but he kind of breaks this down and explains some things and everything like that. And, um, It's an enjoyable movie. I really got it as a fun monster romp. Um, I I would recommend it. Anyway, you can incorporate four monsters and some aliens and do it in like an hour and like 25 minutes is impressive. Like, there's no time to stop. I mean, the monsters are just coming out and being created as fast as it, they're like rising as fast as the movie can get them in there. They're like, well, we're not wasting any time. I mean, they find Dracula at a, at a, um, sideshow. And it does feel like in that way, like a universal setup, cause it's just quick and straight to the point. And, uh, he does talk a little Troy Haworth on the commentary mentions that Paul Nashy was absolutely infatuated with Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And that explains a lot of his career. So the more Nashy I watch, the more I love the guy because he has a genuine love for horror films and i feel like he probably played more of the monsters than anybody else like especially with *Howl of the devil he was like i'm gonna squeeze in as many monsters as i can even if it's a small rabbit i'll be a phantom i'll be dr jekyll mr hyde for two and a half seconds fuck it i'll be frankenstein in here too and i think he played frankenstein in another one maybe i don't know but the dude's played so many monsters and he's always so uh gung-ho and just always entertaining to watch so yeah that is um assignment terror which was a very enjoyable 1970 movie for sure Okay, the next one here is from Jess Franco. This is the second one from nineteen seventy from Jess Franco, along with Count Dracula. You know, we did another one, Eugenie, um, and this is the Bloody Judge, starring Christopher Lee. That's right, um, and this does have a Blu-ray overseas, I think. So I think originally this was released in a PG version, but the out the like one hundred and like four minute, or I mean like one hundred forty-four minute version, or whatever, whatever, uh, one hundred four minutes is is. Rated R, for sure. It's probably unrated. So, this budget is pretty freaking big for Jess Franco. Like I said, in the 70s, 1970s and stuff, Franco's movies weren't what like a lot of people came to know, like him making those like 90s movies, like uh, Incubus and stuff like that. A lot of the real... Dirt cheap ones. Like he made some really kind of like great movies like She Killed Nexus and Vampiro's Lesbos and I Really Like Count Dragula. They made some cool ones too. Like this one is pretty decent. Um it's a it's a period piece. And like in 1970, we and around this time, like 68, we have Vincent Price doing, you know, the Matthew Hopkins character, Witchfinder General. And then we have like I know Peter Cushion doing kind of like his evil kind of uh like Witch Hunter Witchfinder and like Twins of Evil. And then we have Herbert Lom. Mark of the Devil. So we have a lot of these kind of mean witch finder kind of characters around this time and I guess it's time for uh, Christopher Lee to do his in The Bloody Judge. So he, uh, basically Christopher Lee is this, this asshole guy who judges witches and sentences people and everything like that but he never witnesses anything himself. So, of course he gets his eye on this other lord's like son. He doesn't like him. He doesn't like the women that he the girl he's associating with. And he kinda focuses on them. He wants to he, he likes the woman obviously. Has a weird sexual thing. And he wants to obviously sentence them but they're like involved with like overthrowing of the the king this is like I said a period piece there's a lot of governmental stuff so obviously like a a power struggle between like kings and everything like that so Lee's on one side and this other guy's you know working for the other guy trying to overthrow him so we have these battle scenes at times and we have a lot of Lee kind of just being a stern asshole he's very good at that he's good in this film and then we have like a lot of torture scenes like we'll go to the dungeon and we'll have some people being tortured it's not as explicit as Mark of the Devil or anything but it It has its moments. Um, Somebody's hand is lopped off and all that kind of stuff. And the, the main dungeon torturing guy is Howard Vernon just Franco regular, that's nice to see him in this weird black hooded suit, which is absolutely hilarious, um, but yeah it, it's a decent movie, I don't absolutely love it, uh, Harry Allen Towers produced it, He, I believe he produced the Dracula to the Count Dracula, and of course he produced the, uh, the Fu Manchu movies with Christopher Lee, at least a couple of them the The latter two directed by Franco were also Allen Tower movies, so he's one of these kind of low budget guys who produced a lot of uh, Franco's uh, movies from the you know, like 1970 and stuff around that time so uh, yeah, this one I think is it's fairly decent i i liked it um lee's good in it and it's good to see lee kind of play this role uh yeah so if you're big into christopher lee this is kind of a must um if not i feel like there's somebody else in here that i'm just completely missing like i feel like he wouldn't be in there leo glenn is a name that rings rings a bell and uh maria rom yeah she was in count dracula as well so yeah uh that's the blue underground dvd like i said there is a blu-ray but i i think it's an overseas release and probably a german probably very expensive but that is the bloody judge okay this next one here is an evening with edgar Allan poe which is it's kind of a movie it's it's a movie i guess you'd say um and i'm not hitting it like is it a movie but it's made 1970 obviously so basically we have here is um like, a few camera angles on, uh, Vincent Price, reenacting, reading these four post stories. So, we do get, like, cutaways and, uh, different camera angles and everything like that. It's like live television, it really feels like. So, uh, Price is completely different characters and dressed up in these different outfits in all three, all four shorts. So, the first one is, um, the telltale heart which is a classic story if anybody's familiar with that one um and he's really good in this one um, he's tremendous um and you got to remember that this is all like it feels like a one take like lee's doing everything and then they do everything in one and then do some inserts and everything so it's just like a power it's, it's like you get to watch chris i um, at vincent price on stage right doing a live performance so uh that's fantastic And he does this one is probably my second favorite is the telltale heart. And then the next one is um, the Sphinx, which is more of the comedic one, which is cute and funny and ends on a lighter note. Um, but the one that really steals the show is the cast of Amantiano, which is a great story in itself. The post story, it's, it's one of my favorites and it's such a short story that like, I don't know if there's been a feature made of it. I'm sure there is, but, uh, they'll incorporate it in, like Stuart Gordon's pit in the pendulum. They'll have a little scene in there with Oliver Reed. That's kind of like that. Um, but this one is so fantastic and to see his, his, um, acting prowess in here and his pettiness, like pose movie, like his, his like stories are a lot about pettiness and mental like health problems like insanity like especially the telltale heart like anytime somebody tells you they try to convince you of their sanity more than anything like they're trying to tell you they're sane they sound even more insane so like if you've ever heard someone say i'm not crazy i'm not crazy you're like oh man that that person's crazy but if somebody's like i'm crazy uh you're just like you're not crazy we're all crazy which you know but if somebody tells you they're not crazy i'm not crazy you're almost like all right man Leave me alone, please. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, it really feels like that. And that's the Telltale Heart really captures that. Um, like I said, so we're back to the Castellaniano and him doing, uh, the the cuts and the inserts when he does the Fortunato. He's a good jest, my friend. It's so brilliant. And I love how ruthless, um, uh prices in this one just so good so good so amazing and it's such an amazing story i've always loved it uh, how how he just manipulates the situation that's that's probably one of my favorite short stories of all time once i think about it I, I can't think of one that i've read from poe that i liked more than that and seeing price get to do it is just great and his like i said the pettiness in and the ending of it just works perfectly and uh, how, how it ends too is just like oh the spitefulness love it um, and then the final story is um, The Pit and the Pendulum, which is um, I don't know if I've ever read this story, but I know the story, and it's obviously been made in the movies, but this short story is kind of different. It's about this poor guy who's being tortured by the Spanish uh, Inquisition, and he's in this dark hole. Like this dark hole, he can't see anything, and he's wandering, and he comes across the pit, then he's tied up in the Pendulum and all that kind of stuff. And it's just Price just being absolutely terrified and horrified uh, by the entire situation. So this one is is also pretty good. Um, I would rate them Castavagnano Perfect, and then I would do um, the Telltale Heart um, is great. And then I would go The Pit and the Pendulum and then The Stinks. They're all good. They're all pretty solid. And they're all about 15 minutes a piece. And the movie comes in maybe a little like 13 and a half minutes. So it comes in at about 52 minutes. It's, it's pretty great. Um, there is an interview with the director on here and he talks about Price after it was over. He said, uh, that's the the best work I've done in 30 years. Like you could tell he just, like a lot of these classic actors, like these guys like Cushing and Lee and Price, you could tell like they kind of lit up when they got to do something that they felt had like cultural significance or, like, historical, like, literature and stuff. They're just like, like, Lee was very happy, I guess, to actually get to read lines or say lines from the actual Dracula novel is the novel in Count jess Frankl's Count Dracula. So, you know, he you could tell in his performance that he's really jazzed to do it and I love seeing that. I love seeing a classic act. These guys are going to be solid or great in everything they do, but to see them obviously be excited for something is a little special because they're tremendous at everything they do. So, when they're excited, it's even amplified. So, yeah. Okay, this next one here is Mark of the Witch. Yeah, right, the se- 1970 vampires and witches right that's it and and some sign of like maybe some psycho kind of stuff that's about the three key things you're gonna get uh you're not gonna get zombies you're just gonna get mostly vampires witches and psychos okay so mark of the witch um this one starts off brilliantly with this witch being condemned to hang and she does this long elaborate great like kind of curse monologue thing to everybody and then boom And then it cuts to like the credits and we see all these leaves blowing and this great kind of like poetry music kind of thing saying, and I'm like, Oh, this seems like a great little spell movie. And I look at the runtime. It's an hour 17 minutes. I'm like, Oh, we might be in for a little treat. Um, and then we kind of we're in modern times of course like I said on a college campus and all these people are kind of looking in researching the occult from the teacher he's into it so they're all kind of having this weird party where they all bring these occult witch books and everything like that one one of the times they they bring the wrong book and it brings it, it transfers this witch into one of the students and the student wants to carry out revenge and everything like that and all this witchcraft and everything so she starts to manipulate her teacher who apparently is an ancestor of somebody that you know was with her and her covenant and everything like that and and after like it, it sets up and everything it starts to get a little meandering and and she starts to poison some people and everything like that but i literally like the opening was so strong like the first 10-15 minutes i was like this is, seems really great but it just becomes almost meandering for me and I, I started to lose a lot of interest i don't think it's terrible i think it's just decent um i do think the lead uh in here she's solid she's decent and there's obviously a body double in here where they like insert some nudity that had to be put in later like you could tell it's not the same person like when she's like out in the woods kind of screaming at the sky like you can tell like it turns into a body double and then like there's a because you never see her face and like that you see like some nudity that's like splashed in there really quick but uh she has to deal with like uh, as the witch she's like has to relearn things and be taught by the teacher and like her uh, boyfriend and all that kind of stuff and they're obviously in a race of time to try to stop her and save their save their friend of course but uh yeah so this one i felt was decent not great um i thought the picture quality looked really good on the remaster there's no special features which is sad just a trailer and no subtitles so that's mark of the witch from code red put that one out okay so the next one is a mario bava flick and this is hatchet for the honeymoon uh the second movie he directed in 1970 He also directed five dolls for an august moon um this bad boy's got a commentary on here by tim lucas uh, he wrote the book mario bava all colors of the dark so yeah uh this is the this is mario bava doing kind of a psycho thing but his style right so yeah this is a great film it opens up like so so crazy and it all ties together at the end that psycho kind of stuff where you kind of have this really weird character study and this psychological problems like there's so many movies like this and i I enjoy most of them from like i said trauma killer of dolls maniac maniac feels like it was inspired by hatchet for a honeymoon more than psycho right when you see the mannequins and all that kind of stuff and and the mommy problems which is a psycho thing as well but so we have this uh this 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 kind of point of view where we see like on a train you see this young boy like kind of off in the distance and this guy ends up attacking this woman on her wedding night I think it's like a, and killing her with a hatchet or like a cleaver it's more of a cleaver and we basically fall around this character who um, I think he runs like a modeling place where they focus a lot on wedding dresses. He's unhappily married. Their marriage is very cold, obviously not a sexual one. That's that's long past. And it turns out that he is a psycho killer and he has problems that he's trying to kind of exploring himself through these murders and everything has to have a wedding fetish. So anybody getting married is kind of his main focus, which is really dark and bleak, but also kind of humorous and a kind of a I don't even want to say, like is it it's just kinda of morbid, I guess I would say, macabre morbid. So uh eventually he, he starts uh having this relationship with Dagmar Lassender uh She's in um, a bunch of these movies. She's in... um, What's the one? House by the Cemetery by Fulci is the one that rings for me. But she's in a slew of them. And... uh Of course, uh, he just can't contain himself. And there's a thing with his uh, wife, and I want to spoil this a little bit because it's where the movie takes kind of a crazy turn, to be honest. Like, it turns into a partially supernatural, and it gets really bizarre where characters can see the person that he supposedly killed, but he can't see him. And I thought that was pretty clever in a weird way. The lead actor in here, I think, is solid. I think he physically looks the part, you know, kind of like this handsome playboy with money, but he obviously has that void. He's missing something. He literally looks like he's missing his soul within him. It's just very bizarre. And like these movies, there is gonna be that kind of like remembrance, like that for the for the killer, of course. It reminds me a little bit of Nightmare in a Damaged Brain would would kind of take that scene, right, where you kinda have that moment of clarity where you remember exactly you're getting glimpses of the past and then all of a sudden, boom! In a big moment yeah, at the very end or something. Although this is much better done than Nightmare in a Damaged Brain. Not that I hate that movie at all, but this is just low-class here because it's Mario Bava, right? Um, the music in here is great. Love the music. Love the wedding themes. And I love the cinematography. There's lots of cool stuff. Um, there's a great shot where you see him through the door and there's a, like this. everything's dark except there's a, a ray of light with, on his eye. And I'm like, that's really awesome. That's really cool stuff. And it's always funny like when a lot of of times like people will be like I'm sure it's from earlier films but when you're talking horror films people be like that's great in this movie and it's gotta be the first one to do it and then like you'll probably go back and be like I bet Mario Baba did it first. Like you know what I mean and they see something like it looks a little early you know I think Baba probably did that first. Um so yeah like I said it's well acted it's it's well directed it's well shot it's made out of budget though of course um there's good moments of suspense where like there's these police officers looking through his house and there's literally a hand above like hanging off the the staircase and blood's just dripping down and any second they can look up. But are they gonna, you don't know. Um, I thought that it it was a really good character study and weird kind of psycho kind of vibe. You know what I mean? Uh, liked it quite a bit. Loved the commentary by Tim Lucas. He did a very good job pointing out the stuff that he really enjoyed saying all the actors talking about Stephen Forsythe, who he got to talk to the lead in this movie. Um, yeah, so he, he breaks everything down and points out some familiar faces as always. Anyways, uh, no subtitles, but it, it looks really good. It sounds pretty good from Kino or Redemption. Anyways, uh, this one was really enjoyable. I, I liked it quite a bit. Hatchet for the Honeymoon. What? What is this? Zombie Bloodbath 2, Rage the Undead. Hey.
1: What? You ain't seen Zombie Plug back 2, Rage in the Undead? Nah, no, I guess I must have
0: missed that one. You ain't seen nothing. You ain't seen nothing. I seen way more than you. Mm-hmm. You haven't seen Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, Casino, Cannibal Holocaust, The Beginning, The Great Escape, Kelly's Heroes, oh. Once About a Time in the Fucking West. You haven't seen War and Peace, Think
1: Flamingos, Casablanca, Gone with the Wind, Citizen Games. The not and the Chipmunks Christmas Special.
0: You haven't seen, hmm, what else haven't you seen? The Magnificent Seven? The Magnificent Seven Right Again? The Magnificent Seven Are Back? Is that a movie? And last of all, you ain't seen Zombie Bloodbath 2, the Undead. And
1: you haven't seen War and
0: Peace? I ain't watching War and Peace! The hell you are? Fuck War and Peace! Alright, we're here for You Ain't Seen. And this is my pick for you. And I know we were supposed to do Dorian Gray. But The Bird with the Crystal Plumage showed up earlier, so we're going to tackle Arrow's new 4K of The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. You had never seen it. No.
1: Oh, we were supposed to do Dorian Gray?
0: Yeah, that was my pick, but then that showed up and I was like, we're doing The Bird with the Crystal Plumage because I want to watch it now. I don't even pay attention to what we're supposed okay. to do. So this also fits in, obviously, as one of the heavy hitters from <coughs> 1970. So I, I always wanted to just see this one. It's Dario Argento's first giallo his first directed film he actually started as a screenwriter on other things like working under kind of like um sergio leone who is pretty much the big italian director you know the spaghetti westerns good bad and ugly and everything like that so this was his directorial debut his father was a producer so that probably helped him along and being in the it was very incestuous you know everybody was in the italian film market uh, scene and stuff like that so there's a lot of collaborations and this wasn't the first giallo most people Say that's a Mario Bava movie, either The Girl Who Knew Too Much or something like uh, Blood and Black Lace is more kind of considered that. But this was the one that popularized it. And through the early 70s in Italy, there were uh, so many giallo movies coming out in 1970, 1971, 1972. Eventually, he would make two more that were uh, part of the animal trilogy, um, Cat O' Nine Tails and Four Flies on Grey Velvet. He would make Deep Red, he would go on and on and he would revisit the giallo genre with Tan and eventually later on with some stuff like giallo, which I, the later stuff doesn't really feel like a giallo's except Sleepless. But okay, so this is pretty much the one that started it all. It stars Tony Musante, who is kind of a popular actor at the time. He's in stuff like The Incident, which is a really good 1967 film. It also stars who Susie Kendall, who is in Torso, which is another popular semi gialli kind of thing by Sergio Martino, considered a proto-slasher by some very, very much a, a iconic film as well. And who else pops up in this one? Oh, Mario Adolf. Uh, I think that's how you say his name. You recognize him for Major Dundee, which Errol also put out, and uh, a slew of Tessi films. Well, he's in a couple, at least, the Fernando De Leo movies. And uh, going on and on about the movie, I'm a big fan of it um they originally released this on blu-ray a while back these cats are gonna have a fight in the back um and and it looks spectacular so when they announced it was going to be on 4k i was like awesome it um it had a i I covered it before with the supplemental material and all of it's the same except there's a new booklet in there um so I, I'm not even sure if it's a repressing on the booklet. I should double check on that. But um, the, the supplemental stuff is fantastic. I'll probably mention that a little bit because it's all like repeats from the old review, but that stuff was really good. Cat Ellinger and some other people. So, alright, the plot of the film is actually, I, I know a lot about this film because I've just heard a lot of people talk about it and they kind of read up on it and stuff, and it's, it's probably like a repeat, a mixture of everybody's supplemental material crammed into one. Um, they get, basically took from a, um, probably a, a giallo book, Screaming Mimi, maybe it was a creamy, I can't remember, but that's kind of the story where they took it from and made this movie out of it. Um, so, in typical Italian fashion, maybe this is the first one like it, but I remember there's an art scene and then Blood and Black Lace and Mario Bava stuff um basically what is he uh, um, a journalist is in italy writing stories kind of trying to survive and he witnesses a brutal attack and it appears to be um the murderer was the one who attacked the woman he saved her and that's kind of where he gets involved with this investigation uh the police detective kind of uses him really terribly to Mm -hmm. be honest And the police detectives actually in the case know the case is happily resolved, which Arrow also put out great kind of movie. There, Um, go away, (laughs) Goomba, such annoying cat. Um, So yeah. So the, the police detective and him try to figure it out, and there's a bunch of people trying to kill him. And it, at parts, it feels almost like a like a sixty spy stuff when you get the Reggie Nalder stuff. And that's kind of a nice little thing in there. Reggie Nalder also was in another 1970 movie, Mark and the Devil. He was in uh, a albino. bunch of stuff. Yeah, Albino. So, yeah, um, this movie got a lot of history it's got a lot going for it um and you know did the score so it's got a lot of high level people acting and for a film debut man this is fantastic it's pretty good so, like I said, he gets involved trying to solve the serial killer murders that are happening around the city and his girlfriend and him. And he's he's kind of a douchebag. Like, I know that Troy Howard talks in the commentary. It's like, he's not exactly the likable guy. But for some reason, his he, the way he acts, he comes across as not so unlikable. Because a lot of the Italian male leads are typically really unpleasant. Like, if you really think about how they treat people and stuff in the movies. Like, not bad actors, of course, but the characters are always a little, a little gray. Um, So I've talked enough about it. I'm obviously a big fan of the film. I love the killer's motivations. I love the triggering incident, which is a thing I've noticed I've become obsessed with in real serial killer cases or murder cases. And I think that Dario's movies always have the best motivations for the killer. I know some people are like, those are nonsense, they're insane. It's like fake semi-soda, like science shit and and psychology that it may not work, but it it comes from the Alfred Hitchcock school sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of love the Hitchcock ripoffs. I watched one. Um, this week from 1970 as well The the Hatchet for the Honeymoon by Mario Baba and I love that and I love all the crazy stuff in there so um, I guess what did you think of watching it for the first time?
1: It was okay, it was pretty good you know (laughs) Uh,
0: I like the part where
1: we looked at the bird
0: Um, Which is one of these bizarre elements of giallo films where they somehow squeeze in this elaborate title like the iguana with the the tongue of fire and you're
1: like, what's that gonna be? How's that gonna
0: work? (laughs) And then you come to realize that there is, like, it's just such a metaphoric thing that sometimes it doesn't even appear in what's, the movie. What's scorpion the Scorpion one? The, the Case of the Scorpion's tail um, yeah. with Sergio Martino. Then you have um, Bloodstained Butterfly. And it's all got to stem from, right, initially oh, yeah. this movie. Um, this one actually does have the bird in the film. Right. And it does uh, actually directly correlate to how the case is solved. And that part, like, you're kind of like, that's such a reach. You know, it's it's a reach, but... The, um, the procedural necessary is fine. Like, uh, it reminded me of No-Roy, too, how it goes one-step-step. Yeah. Step.
1: Um, the, you know, the one of the, the main characters, his friend, um, you know, is like, oh, that's like the cry of like a very specific <laughs> because bird. Because they have the they, killer recorded. Right. Um, but when they introduce the friend, he is at, like, like a museum of He's sorts where or he, or he yeah. has all the stuffed birds in this. So, I mean, it's not too far for a reach. It's, I guess if he would know it, it would be that. It, it's still just such an odd sound for someone to make a connection with. And
0: um, one more thing before I forget. Mm-hmm. The friend is actually in a, a, a late 60s giallo called Death uh, Laid an Egg. And if I'm not mistaken, there's, like, some, like, uh, industrial shit going on. And I want to say they're studying, like, are they studying bird eggs or something? So that's so weird that he's obsessed with well, birds in this movie, too, right? It's- so what were you saying about the friend oh. actually being a doctor and everything? No, I forgot. Sorry, I completely <laughs> ruined that. Uh, but, yeah, you were saying that he actually is part of a, a scientific thing. So it does make sense. It's not too far of a reach for him right. to understand the bird call. Um, no,
1: yeah, I mean, it's. It's an okay film. It's uh, definitely, I think, from Inspired by Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, of course. um, Absolutely. I I even think that there's, like... And I I know I'm stretching. um, But I think that there's a call-out to Psycho when they have, like, the lineup of suspects. And uh, the police chief is like... Get that transvestite out of
0: here! But not the perverts, we're with the psychos. No, no, no. <laughs> she said he didn't say that. He said I said the perverts, not the trans. And <laughs> like, and then like the trans person's really offended. And I, that's one of these things where it has that element of comedy, which Dario would always have. you would right. always have like overtly homosexual characters, although they are played for comedic relief. Like I never feel like they're like miserable, like horrible people or anything like that. And one of them actually has one of the homosexual characters help solving the case oh, and, like, yeah. as one of the major characters which i liked um, um but there's just, actually two or three homosexual yeah. characters in, in this one but um what
1: you had like the art gallery yeah guy. but you, you know i always feel like that was like a big takeaway from psycho not that i've ever seen psycho but like the big takeaway it's like oh if you're you know trans then you're you know a, a psycho you know or a pervert crazy right now um, um
0: Another thing that I really like about the movie is like we said about the early Hammer stuff like where like there's always these side characters that are completely quirky and mm-hmm. weird. And this is 100% this. Every character that is, is in part of the investigation or comes in contact with, it's just a weird person. Like we have the pimp in jail who has to say, um, uh, what is it, so long every time so he doesn't stutter. And then we also have the... Um, We have the weird guy who is really paranoid and double-talking. And he's like, no, I don't want your money. And then he pockets it, that kind of stuff. We have the artist who is one of the best characters who's actually played Mario Adolf. And his stuff is great with the cats. And like I said, the reveal here, the way that the transition is is one of my favorite transitions um, in a movie. Because it literally shows them staring at this painting that they think is possibly um involved with the case and they're looking at it in black and white and we have the character and it kind of goes into the painting we see the painting and it zooms out of the painting and it goes into color and we realize that we've transitioned from the photo of the picture them looking at it to the real life killer staring at the painting in his giallo outfit and it's just a spectacular scene you can actually see um, Dario dressed as the killer in a reflection. Like, I was like, is that a cameraman back there? Mm. But it's actually Dario because obviously he always wanted to dress as the killer in his films. Okay. So that, that's a really nice touch. I really love that. Um, they did the cool trick where they threw the camera out the window and messed it up. Oh, well, that was really cool. Yeah. That was the jumping scene, right? Yeah. 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 So did you know who the killer was?
1: I mean, it's quite clear, but it's my husband. And oh, at one spoiler. point. Spoiler. Oh, yeah, spoiler for 1970. Yeah, so we'll talk a little bit about it, but
0: it it is 40 years. It is kind of clear that that person has to be involved, but they give you a lot of red herrings. And like you were like, it's the friend, it's the cop. You're just like throwing things out there. But the way at the very end, you're like, it has to be that. And there was a huge part about this movie that people completely complained that they said, well, they showed it differently. They actually really don't. They actually show his point of view. And you don't, it's its like kind of like semi-different. It's semi-obscured. You see like just two characters struggling. You never right. see who actually is holding the knife. And then when he remembers, we see different things. Right. But... I know it's kind of cheating, and Dario would kind of cheat a little bit. I know the screenwriter Nestor Godaldi made a joke about that in one of the supplemental features on something. He said if he had made The Sixth Sense, he would have made Bruce Willis's character interacting with the wife. Like, completely going against that, he obviously is dead. And, by the end. and I thought it was kind of funny. That was a little bit of, little bit of mudslinging right there. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, you ask any police officer anything about a case, um, you don't remember the suspect. Like the, that's why as more time goes by, your memory fades, just like a dream or a nightmare. Mm -hmm. You try to recall and it's never the same. You remember things differently. You plug in other life events to cover that. And so he starts to remember it differently, but he always says there's something wrong with my memory. I cannot remember exact, but the initial shot he sees, it's kind of obscured. You never really see, you just see a part of it. So you never really know exactly what whole picture he saw. So Mm -hmm. That complaint is kind of stupid.
1: Yeah, I guess.
0: But, yes. the whole, <laughs> but the whole reveal is based on that, so if you never buy that, you're going to have a
1: problem. You see, this is a, a tricky thing because I've seen so many Jellos, and so many Jellos, I think, just completely make shit up in them to where it's <laughs> you like, can never guess it, it, right you can't guess because it, like like what's the one where they, they have like the killer but they have like a cutaway
0: scene where there's a plane leaving I guess you're supposed stop. to stop that's ten and <laughs> that's Dario <laughs> And the, that's my favorite, and it's not even really, it's like a throwback. It's like him making comments about the critics, making comments about his violence towards, it, I love that movie. I, it's one of my all-time favorites. I you know, I, want to talk about I, I was about movie. to quote that movie, and I was going to say, like Peter Neal says in Tenenbrae, I'll probably screw this up. He says, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. And that's what I love. And that's, like, that's such a great line. And that's such a great idea when it comes to Giallo. But there are so many Giallo, or Gialli, however you guys want to say it, don't yeah. kill me, that are bullshit, right? Like, you're oh, like, this yeah. is a, like a lot of them, I, like, slashers, too. Like, I back in the Scream day, like, Scream was a 96 slasher, right? And some slashers, you always wanted to guess who the killer was. It was just kind of a formulaic thing where, let's guess who the killer is. But most slashers... You don't really guess who the killer. Is. It's either mad, it's this big like mongoloid in the woods, like Madman Mars, or, or 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 something like that, or or Cropsy, where you don't really think it's going to be any other killer. And even Friday the Thirteenth, you start to suspect like it's because it's, it's a bay of the, a bay of blood take. Who's the killer? Who's the killer? And then it just randomly is some old lady, and they tie mm-hmm. it into something in the very beginning. And you're like, that's kind of horseshit. Let's be honest. But I let it pass because I enjoyed the entire movie, and it's become such a historic moment in film. That nobody really gives a shit, right?
1: You know, and I guess when you know when I, when I am watching Jalo, I'm not really ever trying to solve what the murder is because I know it's just going to kind of be some bullshit. <laughs> but that wasn't that one wasn't really that. No, this one wasn't. Um, I will say, that I kind of wish that there were more clues or certain things, like like so when he finds out about like like the cigar smoking and like the type of gloves, like you know they, they, well, they knew they were artistic and they had money they had right class. you know they, they 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 have these like just these like things that you should be on the lookout for but then it's like eh, they don't really it's show like, the killers really interacting with that and even like the scene with the um with the husband like he gives them a pack of cigarettes not a thing of cigars you know they go so far as far as say oh they're like havana cigars you know because she probably was.
0: Was she smoking them cigars? But you never. But he's that's wearing the the gloves, though. Who yeah, was yeah, he's wearing, wearing the gloves. The glove,
1: but you never see her, you know, with a cigar. But you do see the friend of a cigar, and yeah, yeah. they were definitely, um,
0: definitely throwing it. Yeah, you know, they're they just kind of
1: like throwing, you know, stuff out there. But
0: but like I like in the they do point out stuff in here. Like they do point out things that play into the fact. Like the painting, the customer who actually oh, bought yeah. that painting. I love the idea of what happened to this person. Mm-hmm. And at the very end, they tell you, they do the psycho thing. Like, what actually happened? Right. It? And for a long time, they did that kind of shit, and I'm fine with it. But the idea for like the killers, the triggering effect is, is really great. So this poor girl one day was in the, the park, and she was attacked by a mad person, a, a, a psychopath or a rapist or some sort, we assume. And the artist actually stopped it the attack from happening, but he drew the picture of the attack. Mm-hmm. So this this woman went on to basically be okay. She had some mental problems before, they say. So what happens is, which explains her helicopter husband, obviously, from other things. But what happens is, so she's in the art gallery looking around because it makes sense because she's part of the art scene, and she sees the painting on the wall that her friend painted of that attack. She kind of just... Boom, right there. It triggers this kind of violence where she doesn't associate herself with the victim anymore, Mm -hmm. but but the the killer. killer. So she snaps... She takes the painting home with her and that's what's great. They said, Well who bought like who bought the painting? It was a young girl I didn't know her, and the girl who sold her the painting was actually a first victim. So mm-hmm. it's just great that like when you rewatch it, you're like, Oh shit, it like killed the first person that sold the painting, and like they don't remember who she is. And it's just mm-hmm. it worked, covered her tracks, but it was also just uh, accidental covering of your tracks. Right. Um, I don't I don't know what else to say about it, do you?
1: No, I mean it's like it's, it's alright.
0: Suzu um
1: I feel like it just the kill is definitely inspired from it
0: um now they say Brian De Palma actually never saw too many of um, Dario's movies I do know that Troy Haworth mentions that that he did see one that because of um, one of the other directors uh was it uh Lucas somebody told him to check it out and he thinks mm-hmm. he'd like it and I don't know it, it's it's funny like people are like I think he ripped it off I don't think he ripped it off um that's ridiculous. To think Brian De did it, but it's like at the end of the day, there everybody's ripping off Alfred Hitchcock anyway. So it's just like, well, I did, I ripped off Hitchcock directly. I didn't rip off everybody. And Dario, um, <coughs> even Bava's movies. Like I know Baba's completely unique and different. As you mix the gothic stuff, but like Hatchet for a Honeymoon has a lot of Hitchcock shit in there. Like after Psycho, somebody made a joke about that. I said make a double feature, um, but it's just kind of sequels. I gotta stop you from doing this. She's like purposely trying to get a bunch of attention on purpose and it's very annoying.
1: She had, We got her some new toys. And no, no, it's not. That it, she
0: just doesn't pay attention to you for 10 years and then all of a sudden you're doing something she wants involved just because she's not getting attention. But no. But anyways, so somebody made a joke about it. They were like, I said, make it your own double feature with movies that actually aren't sequels, but make them sequels. And somebody said, Psycho and any three-fourths of horror movies after Psycho. And I was like, that's 100% accurate. Right. Like, so I love the movie. The new 4K looks great. What I notice is the crispness. Like, you would never say this movie is 51 years old, would you? I just said it earlier in this Yeah, but video, you would never guess it was 51 years old. I would. Would you? Yeah. By, the, by that 4K? Yeah. Are you serious?
1: Well, I mean, I, I... He has no
0: fucking clue what he's talking about. It's like... <laughs> But I don't even know why I brought that great. up to you. It looked, yeah, it was, I, I like seriously. He's like contradicting me without evidence. It's like you're like, oh that that's that's blue. You're like, no, yeah, it's not what I was gonna say. <laughs> no, I
1: mean I can tell that it's a '70s Italian film because you know it's Yeah, the style movie. and everything,
0: but picture quality. Picture
1: quality. Going off of one aspect of the film. You see, yes. now he puts in the. Caveat. I told you now picture quality. Like, no, it's like, oh it's <laughs> a
0: Any, Anyways, I'm a big fan of the movie. It's not in either books. I don't know why. Maybe it wasn't. It was released under Alton. I couldn't find it in either book. Maybe it's but not I, technically horror, maybe it is a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Jolly falls under horror, <laughs> and some of the murder scenes, especially the one in particular when the cut shirt is ripped off the cuts the shirt oh, off. Yeah, that, that's that. like gratuitous as shit. Like, that's mm-hmm. like, um, I know that New York Ripper would do that like tenfold, but this is 1970. Like, and there, uh, I think Troy Harworth mentions that he thinks some was cut out of that, like possibly because it is particularly brutal for 1970. So far, though, the. Two most brutal movies of 1970 are probably Mark of the Devil, and which I've seen a couple times, and I Drink Your Blood. Maybe Jonathan as well. Those movies, I think, have a sense of brutality to them. That's a little...
1: Is this your favorite Argento?
0: No. Okay. No. Uh, Tenenbrae. I, I would put... Opera? I would... No. I like it. I, would, I do too. I would put Tenenbrae, mm-hmm. Suspiria, mm-hmm. Inferno. Phenomenon Over this This is my fifth favorite Those five I think Are all amazing And I also think Deep Red's great I don't I like Deep Red Don't get me wrong I love Deep Red But it's just I don't have the same Connection to it As those other five Because those other five I just think I've seen more And have been more connected I've seen Deep Red A couple times I do like Deep Red Deep Red would be six I like the Suspiria remake Better than the original I know I might just like Blur it Where we do technical Difficulties (laughs) Just like Just put the cat in front Like this (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but, um, so, uh, I'm gonna have to give it, I don't even want to give my rating because we're doing the 1970 show on 22 Shots, and I think if I give it, it'll, I don't even know what my favorite movie in 1970 is, to be honest yet, watching so many, I like a lot, and even the bad ones I enjoy watching. Between this and
1: Mark the Devil, I, I think I actually like this one a bit more, Yeah. although I did really like, um, Herbert Long, Herbert Long and Mark the Devil, um, I, I'd give this one easily like a four and a half, um. I think I think it's really good it plays really quick um it's I don't think it's too drawn out and I think there's enough like neat little side characters in it to kind of keep it entertaining Uh, I especially love the antique owner and uh the the artist and
0: I really like the police chief too I I thought that he was a funny character (laughs) He's in he's in a bunch of stuff. Like I said, he's in Know the case is happily resolved, which is a is a he's a journalist in that movie, which is funny. He plays the cop in this one, and he's also in the Savage Three, where he plays a police officer, and he's constantly in uh, communication with Joe D'Alessandro, and he doesn't know that he is the killer that he's looking for, or maybe he does. I don't know. But he's a he's a he's got a good face. He's a good demeanor Jack about Markleson? him. Who? No, that was just me. Christian Slater? What's the difference? Um, There's a lot of difference. But what's... (laughs) I mean, me doing a bad Jack Nicholson is just Christian Slater. Right. Uh, I wasn't my attempt at Jack Nicholson. Okay, I didn't know. I thought that was. No, no. I don't even think I could do a Jack Nicholson. Let me see. He's like... uh, What's the line in one of the Cuckoo's Nest I like? He's like... When you rip it in half, you don't get two nickels. When you rip a dime in half, you don't get two nickels, Martini. Try smoking it that way. <laughs> Some shit like that. That's about as close as I can get. Um, what, what are we doing next week for your pick? We're going to do Lilo and Stitch. What the fuck? Yeah.
1: Because <sighs> I'm going on vacation in like a week, so it's like, oh, we should watch a vacation movie. Not that that Why do not do for a vacation.
0: What do you want? What, what, what do you want to watch? A vacation. Let's just watch a real vacation movie. Alright, fine. We're watching Yeah, Lilo we're watching
1: Stitch. it because... Next
0: week, I, I, I'm got. i sorry I pushed and Gray back, but I'll pick it. I just had to take the opportunity to do Bird. No, we're not doing Dorian Gray next week. No, no, it. the week after. We're oh, doing yeah, the, your the pick, Lilo after. and Stitch.
1: Yeah, damn straight. You know, one of the best Disney movies ever made, actually. And I'm going to talk about it in
0: depth. Fuck Disney. Who said that? <laughs> Remember that Simpsons The Yo, laptop Remember
1: that shit? <laughs> no, uh, I don't
0: remember. no well, it was the Super Bowl episode and they, they kept putting the cup in front of them I like, oh the Falcons. <laughs> All right. well, um, we're done, right?
1: I guess are we done?
0: We're done. We're done for good okay let's get into these questions and comments uh paul quixote love your reviews i'm glad you covered the bill rubain set i've been on the fence about picking it up well let me let me know if you do end up picking it up and how you feel about it uh fruit wobbler the segment with your uh compadre uh is that compadre or compare was really fun Your back and forth with him is great the memories of watching movies with your mother was so touching great stuff thank you very much uh Gorky M. I saw Pink Flamingos at a small New York uh, City movie theater called 8th Street Playhouse back in 78. It was a midnight show and played for months and months. Punk was happening at the time and the guy with the hair standing straight up sat right in front of me. I wanted to put a match to it Forward years later. And I bring home a VHS copy of pink flamingos to show my family. They didn't talk to me for the rest of the week. Was that, was that your, like your kids and your wife or your, your parents and your brother and sisters? Cause I, I just, I can, I, I showed my parents when I was an adult, they watched, um, I, I showed them the Manson family. Um, by jim van bever and i showed him henry portrait of the serial killer um those two were pretty wild but i mean they were watching hbo non-stop uh, you know deadwood and stuff but man it's the family i think might have been pushing a little bit they didn't say anything though they said it was pretty crazy uh, Brandon Hawkins I enjoy watching reviews thank you Nick Mua double features can be deli- my question of the week was a double feature that could play as two two unrelated movies like kind of like a sequel that's not really a sequel I, I suggested like Night of the Living Dead Return of the Dead or Zombie then Dawn of the Dead kind of saying zombie as the first of that would be cool so Nick Mua double features can be delicious like mac and cheese or disgusting like mixing spinach with applesauce it's a weird Weird thing to say. Still, I'd risk it. Uh, I would show Plague of the Zombies before Serpent and the Rainbow. Very cool. Maybe some Squire Hel- uh, Hamilton's John Carson spells made their way into the clutches of the Police Chief uh, Darknet and and he decided to unleash some sweet zombie hell. It's been so long since I watched Serpent in the Rainbow*. Um, I would also show *Pumpkinhead* before *Drag Me to Hell*. Let's forget them other *Pumpkinhead* sequels. Lance Hendrickson Lance sure wishes he could. Perhaps Madame Gannouchi is Haggis in the 21st century. Questions: What is your favorite John Waters movie? For me, it's *Serial Mom*. Off memory, just going. Let's go *Serial Mom* or *Pink Flamingos*. I need to turn this page, turn this page. Uh, come on, Bob Seger, turn the page. If everything you touch turned into a DVD or Blu-ray, kind of like the Midas Touch, how would you proceed? Now, like, do they turn it Blu-rays I want, or if like, I touch a regular person that is very, like, vanilla, do they turn into, like, a Jerry Maguire VHS tape or something? Like, what what's going to happen? If I touch, like, a really cool, weird person, are they going to turn into, like, a remastered deluxe 4K edition of, like, uh, Day in the Dead? Like I don't know. I need. I need. I need some answers to these. I need variables. Okay. So uh, please name a seriously dated film that you love. So I guess people would probably consider most westerns really dated. Um let me think uh geez one that's dated that i absolutely love any comedy man like any comedy from the 90s is pretty rough like i guess dirty work dirty work is one of my absolute favorite movies um i don't know if it's the most dated thing ever or anything like that but any anything really any comedy but dirty works for my all-time favorite movies. so art uh Figueroa, very good thank you the maniac another great video sir enjoyed your talk on pink flamingos for all us assholes you asshole <laughs> love it as for my make your own sequels double feature pick i'd start with nuclear attack movie like the day after and follow it up with a boy and his dog so it's like the pre-nuclear war movie and post-nuclear war movie very cool i don't know if this would count but another choice would be abacostella meet frank assigned followed by its sequel the monster squad i like it uh, ken coakley i rented pink flamingos in 1985 my brother walked in when divine ate the dog stuff which was real he saw it playing and ran into the bathroom and yacked I saw this at my local cinema three years ago, as well as multiple maniacs. It was funny gauging the reaction of the audience. The Pink Panther slash Pink Flamingo story reminded me of a story of when I worked at a video store and another employee put Fritz the Cat, an X-rated cartoon, in the children's section. A mom rented it out and returned it that day. I was furious, but the lady was nice about it. We gave her a free rental. I bet. Uh, Ken Coakley also, uh, I didn't know that William Smith passed away until you mentioned it. He had a great body of work. He found some fame as a character called Falconetti on uh, the miniseries Rich Man Poor Man. One movie he did that I recommend is Fast Company, starring Smith and John Saxon. It was directed by David Cronenberg. I have that on DVD and maybe even Blu-ray. Um, Smith also appeared in two SE Hinton films, The Outsiders and Rumblefish. Yeah, he's great in Rumblefish. I, I haven't seen Outsiders in so long. Rumblefish he plays the cop, if I'm not mistaken. Conan the Barbarian, Red Dawn, in which he smoked real Russian, a language he was fluent in. Yeah, of course, seen Red Dawn, C.C. and Company with Sid Haig, as well, Invasion of the B Girls and Grave of the Vampire. I'd like to watch Grave of the Vampire, the uh, John, John Hayes movie. Um, Ken Coakley, I agree with you about Invasion from Inner Earth and the Alpha Incident. While Invasion from Inner Earth was boring, it was supposed to be a secular ver- version of the of a rapture film. There is a similar movie that is action-packed called The Remaining, which came out a few years ago. People at a wedding fall dead while others panic. It had it all, including flying demons who butcher those left behind. Very cool. I really love the Alpha Incident. It's always good to see George Buckflower. I remember when Snake Piskin or Pliskin, sorry, looking for the president finds Buck with a local bracelet saying, I'm the president, then hums hail to the chief. Very funny. Uh, Buck Flowers classic. Um, you know one movie he's in that nobody, I mean, they they talk about it, but Witch Who Came From the Sea, that's an early performance from him, and he doesn't just play your typical, I'm Buck Flower, give me a fucking drink. You know what I mean? He plays a, a cop. It's a pretty good role. It's a small role, but still, it's nice seeing him. And great movie. E.C. Miceo. I also get annoyed when my slips get scuffed, too. I don't care about completing things like franchises or labels, but I would get super antsy when there's a slight, subtle damage on a case or cover art. Haha, it's embarrassing. Pink flamingos I never thought was all that crazy, but people keep talking about certain scenes and giving it that extreme status over the years. I'm sorry you got bitten by a chameleon. I used to catch grasshoppers as a kid, don't ask, and one of them bit me and I bled and never caught one again. You remember shit uh, as a kid. And that's how lessons are learned. Ha ha. Oh, I used to catch grasshoppers all the time, to be honest. Um, we had a field and, uh, I caught tons and tons of grasshoppers. One time at a campground, I actually caught one and I ripped its head off. I felt so bad. Like you grab it and you're just like, Oh, I was only like five or six. I was probably like seven or eight. But no, I used to love catching stuff as a kid, like, um, frogs and toads and, uh, crayfish used to get down to the creek and use two nets, lift the rock up and, trap them into each other because the crayfish will i don't know why i'm telling you guys this the crayfish would always look at the the first net it sees so you put one behind it and you scoop them in most of the time we let everything go um i mean some of the crayfish uh you know like my uncle and his buddy would cook and eat but most of the time they, we just let everything go you know after after a day especially frogs i tell you just don't keep those that amphibians are not really that easy to keep as pets you know So, uh, Mark Humphreys, um, so here we have some more of the double feature sequel kind of idea, uh, Evil Dead and Witchery, aka La Casa 1 and 4, uh, Bruce Holchek, don't answer the phone in Death Wish 2. Very cool. <laughs> I would love to see Nicholas Worth go against uh, that uh, Charlie Bronson in that. You know, because it's funny. Like they feel like they should have crossed movie pass, cinematic movie pass, right? Because you have Nicholas Worth as like that sleazy killer, Kurt Smith, and Don't Answer the Phone. Charles Bronson as the Vigilante in all the Death Wish movies, and even the Vigilante Cop in Ten to Midnight. And then you have um, Nicholas Worth and stuff like Ladies' Club, where he plays that rape, like. They definitely could have ran across each other here or there. Scott Shermer, Romancing the Stone and War of the Roses. Sean Don- The Michael Douglas connection there. Sean Donahue, Fast Times at Ridgemont High and The Wildlife. Yeah, they were semi-sequels, weren't they? Uh, Corey Walter, Home Alone and The Collector slash Collection. There we go. Scott Robinson, Deadly Games, a.k.a. Dial Code Santa Claus, and Silent Night, Deadly Night. Oh, so that kid grows up to be uh, the crazy uh, killer in Silent Night, Deadly Night. Uh, Al Blanton, The Thing in Society. I see. The, the alien did escape from the thing, but it had to lay low and slowly it entered society and created its own race. Um, Corey Walter, Stuart Little and Willard. Very funny. Andrew Martin Hogston, Ghostbusters and Hellboy. Eric Whiting, Frankenstein, 1931 and Young Frankenstein. Cool. Zach Killingsworth, Night of the Comet. Earth Girls are easy. Boom. There we go. Uh, Rebecca Reinhardt, Return of the Living Dead and Chud 2. I like that, but I would go Return of the Dead Part 2 and Chud 2. Uh, Sean Donahue, The Breakfast Club and Relentless. Man. That's a fall from grace for Judd Nelson. He lost it. Um, Cody Rapp, Combat Shock and Jacob's Ladder. War is hell. Flesh for Frankenstein and Reanimator. He's got another one. Very cool. Uh, house and house and 1984 and *Brazil*. Then Adrian, uh, Michelagny, or how do you say that? Michelli? Uh, Evil Dead and Demons, Corey Walter, The Little Vampire and Love Bites, the massacre video one. Hmm. i never watched Love Bites, but I know it's a homosexual oriented vampire movie. And The Little Vampire is a kid's vampire movie. So Alex DaVinci, Jason Lives and Hatchet, Jay Wall, Evil Dead and Demons, Don Adams, Psycho, and three-fourths of the horror movies ever made. That's the joke I referenced earlier, but he's right. Dustin Baker, I'll give you a triple. Night of the Demons, The Combat, The Hazing. I've always seemed to watch those around each other. I actually had, as a kid, a recorded tape of Night of the Demons, Fright Night 2, and Unnameable 2. He's watched the tape a lot. Don Adams, my favorite Star Trek episode, Return of the Archons, and all the Purge franchise. To his credit, that director is one guy who said, yeah, that's where I got it from. I see uh neil machino uh machino night of the creeps some kind of wonderful peter england Smokey and the bandit and the cannibal run the witch and autopsy of jane doe uh peter england by the way dave and answer of mine an older question you didn't mention pick one actor slash actress dead or alive and put them in a dream role for a film book or tv show answer burt reynolds in once about a time in hollywood that that bummed me out i would have loved to see that Uh, Jamel Potter, Peter England. I actually chose Hooper in Once Upon a Time in Hellwood as a great double feature, then remembered how much better it would have been if Reynolds didn't get replaced. Susie Ayala, hack o and Action USA, I like to think that Tommy went on to become a law enforcement. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Ben Galgos, I have a headcanon where they live and Repo Man take place in the same universe. Why not? J.W. Knight, Hell Living Dead and Zombie 3, I like it. Um, Peter England, Trilogy, The Good Shepherd, JFK and Irishman, John Bludgeon, Demons in the Church, Possibly Last House on the Left, and Night Train Murders, JP drinka In Santerium and The Rage, Flubirds and Caw, Rob Kopinski, Diodato's Phantom of Death and Carpenter's Halloween, uh, Joachim Johansson, The Last Shark and Jaws 3, Belinda McKay, Not sure if it works, but Near Dark and the Lost Boys or the Holling and Gremlins, Andre Scott um, Friday 13th and the burning. Okay. So, since I covered the Go-Go Boys, the Inside the Story of Canon Films, I want to know what your favorite documentary about films is. So let me know uh, what your favorite documentary about films is. I know there's a bunch out there. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to hop into the update. Okay, so we got a quick update here. First up is Hairspray by John Waters. Did not have this movie. Never actually watched it. know it's a classic. Yeah, it's got a nice cast in there. Divine, Deborah Harry, Ricky Lake, Jerry Stiller, Sonny Bono. Uh, yeah, never seen it. I look forward to checking it out. I probably should watch all John Waters movies, so I'm going to get to it. I've liked everything I've seen so far. So This just came in today. Deep cover uh, with Lawrence Fishburne, directed by Bill Duke. Love Bill Duke. He directed that uh, movie Hoodlum, too. It's been a long time since i watched Hoodlum. Is it Lawrence Fishburne in that one? Tim Roth? uh, Geez. um, Andy Garcia? Based on a true story, it's a pretty good movie. Pretty good gangster film. And then we got... We got Buffalo 66, Vincent in Gallo, Christina Ricci. Never saw this film, so I know it's got a big cult following. So why the hell not? Then this, finally this stuff came from uh, Right Stuff. Uh, this stuff was on back order and that's fine because I got a great price on it. These movies are usually expensive. Not this one, Shin Godzilla. This really great Godzilla film. Really dug this one, had to have the actual disc. I just had it digitally, so. Um, and this one was kind of ex- rare. So, I mean not rare, but it's always like $30 and I actually got it for like 20 as the gods will by Takashi Mike. Um, happy to have it. I have to check that out when I get a chance. Takashi Mike's movies are crazy. So, yeah, cool to have that. And this bad boy, I got a good price on too, the Wicked City anime Blu-ray. Um, it was like seventeen dollars. So it's good, good price for it. I've always wanted to check this one out. I hear it is absolutely insane as well. So I've never seen any of these like these like old anime like action horror films that I've disliked. I've enjoyed almost all of them. Um, what is it? Demon City, um, Vampire Hunter D one and two. Jeez, uh, Ninja Ninja Scroll. All of them have been really awesome. So Wicked City, I'm sure I'll dig too. So yeah. So it's a short update. I guess we're gonna hop back to the video. All right, guys, thank you very much for watching, and as always, have a good one. Kung, flu f- uh, Kung, fu- Kung, fu- Kung Fu Flick. I can't speak right now. Flu. Uh, Kung Flu Flick. I can't say that word right now.